Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 22nd of July, 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined uh, by Alex Thompson bringing us... Uh, what's Alex bringing us? Eastern approaches, usually. Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Thank you. They did a bit of a prompt there. Um, well, over many occasions, um, UK Column News, we've had to say that we've got important news for you. And I think today we have. Um, we're going to be kicking off straight away with the subject of COVID and essentially what is coming. And uh, what we are seeing is deeply, deeply concerning. And I think uh, if the UK public allow this to go ahead, we are going to be in a very different world in the United Kingdom, certainly in 2021. Let's start with a simple email. Now, we're delighted that many of our viewers and listeners have been picking up when we've been suggesting that it's still important to write letters, send emails, challenging the government on what they're doing. And we received this email from UK column viewer John, and it's on the subject of mandatory mask, mask exemptions. Now, let's have a look at what uh, happened here. He'd initially uh, spoken to his, lo his local MP, <clears throat> didn't get the, any sensible answers, uh, so turned to Public Health England. And this is what he said. My local MP recommended I contact you regarding exemptions from mask wearing. He was unable to answer my question. Nothing new there, mm. uh, Mike, because these MPs simply don't know anything. So he, uh, John carries on. How can someone such as myself, who under the rules of mask exemption, that is, I have mental illness and in the severe disability category of the Employment Support Allowance Work Support Group, and I'm in receipt of personal independence payments. How can I prove that I'm exempt from wearing face masks when I ask, uh, when I'm, <coughs> excuse me, when I am asked? My concern is having trouble using public transport, social disapproval conflict and police use of fines for non-compliance. There appear to be no advice from government.uk, face coverings, when to wear one and how to make your own about this, how do I prove my exemption when my disability is psychological without having to talk about something deeply personal uh, to strangers? Your help, advice and guidance would be very appreciated. Now, this is a very good email because it's short, it's concise, it's very polite, it's to the point. Uh, but we can easily see what the problem is here, that many people in UK have disabilities. Wearing a face mask is a real problem, but we're not getting any sensible advice from the government. So what did uh, Public Health England come back with? Uh, well, let's see. Now, it comes back from Ian, Public Health England inquiry. So we're not sure of the uh, qualifications of this gentleman, um, possibly just a desk officer. Public Health England is working closely with government and the NHS to respond to this epidemic and to provide guidance to protect and inform healthcare professionals and the public. The Cabinet Office have released guidance on face coverings, when to wear one and how to make your own, which is available here. Section 5 of this guidance includes further information on exemptions and the circumstances whereby a person is not mandated to wear a face covering. Specifically, this includes if putting on, wearing or removing a face covering will cause you severe distress, 
currently advises that you do not need to carry an exemption card or doctor's note to prove this. Now, of course, this completely sidesteps the issue that's been raised in the original email because what is going, what is almost certainly going to occur is that uh, when you walk into a shop full of members of the public wearing face masks and you say you have an exemption, they're going to ask for proof of that exemption and that proof you don't have because you can't get it from Public Health England, nor can you get it from your GP because we know that the NHS has told GPs not to issue any form of mask wearing exemptions. So the member of the public, John in this case, is being put in a cleft stick where there is going to be a backlash from the public. Now, just before we open this up and move on to a, an incredible document which uh, we've been uh, provided with this morning, let's just put some of this in context. We've said for some time that the British government is attacking uh, the general public by the use of applied psychology. The UK column broke the Mindspace document back in 2010 where the British government was boasting of being able to use applied psychology to change the way we think and behave. And the UK column also broke the news that the government's scientific advisory group, SAGE, was uh, working together with the behavioural insights team to use applied psychology in COVID policy in order to turn community members against each other. So the two key players are really the UK government and behavioural insights team working hand in glove with SAGE. So the first thing to remember is that the minutes of their own meeting showed that they were plotting to use what is aggressive psychology to turn communities against each other so that that community would enforce government COVID advice. Pretty amazing stuff, Mike, for a democracy which we're supposedly living in. So what's the government been up to? Well, it has failed to undertake any quantitative medical risk assessment on the dangers of wearing masks. It's simply not enough for the Cabinet Office to say you must wear a mask where is the medical basis for the safety? So why have they done this? Well, basically, if we just analyze it in simple steps, they've denied public informed consent, read the risks around masks. And of course, they're deflecting challenges, just like we've seen in the response to John's email, when the public say, where, where's the detail, where's the scientific evidence of the safety of face masks? You're just put in a loop by the government. That's deliberate. So tactic two is to deny those public mask exemption cards and doctor's notes. And we put there again that the NHS has briefed uh, to stop GPs from assisting people who are saying that they need an exemption. So this is now a total lockdown on the NHS by presumably the Cabinet Office. Tactic three, bullying the public sector like the NHS, but also commercial outlets to adhere to what is a flawed mask wearing advice system. We've got no evidence to back it up. We're just told to do it, never mind about the dangers. So tactic four, the wearing of the mask becomes a self-fulfilling <coughs> evidence, but it's false evidence that we've still got a COVID-19 pandemic. If you see people wearing masks, we must have a problem whether that's true or not. Tactic five, 
wearing a mask in a shop, but the staff don't have to wear a mask or indeed you don't have to wear a mask elsewhere, increases the public confusion. It adds to the fear and the stress and that ultimately makes the public more vulnerable to the idea of a second COVID wave. And lastly, we've pushed or the government has pushed through public confusion, fear and stress. And this is going to make them easier um, to put out the objective of a vaccine program, certainly forced vaccination. So if we follow it through, what was predicted in the Bit and Sage meeting that if they used the right psychology, they could turn people against each other. That has now turned into fact. And we've got this incredible um, confusion and angst and uncertainty really starting to hit the population. Um, perhaps we can just bring in Alex at this point. Alex, this is very, very dangerous when we've got a so-called democratic government using tactics, which I'm going to say are Soviet in order to get through I'm, the agenda that they want to bring in. I, I think Soviet is a completely applicable term. And I say this as a former Kremlinologist from within the system, because what are Soviet tactics? It is opacity and it's onion like layers of officialdom from which uh, one layer refers you to the other. Now, we've said for some time that the National Health Service proper, or particularly in England, because it's devolved in the other three countries of the UK now, NHS England has long uh, passed the buck to Public Health England, another quango, a quasi-autonomous national government uh, organisation or non-governmental organisation, uh, for any statistical deep data or details when UK column and their ilk press for that. Now we see a third layer. PHE has realised, or someone within them, has realized uh, just in the same way that the Soviet nomenklatura did in the past that ah, the, uh, the agency that is the, in the ascendant now is the cabinet office. So we have to refer them to that. So it's the, the, the gloves are off now. There is no shame now, even in not directly government agencies, but generally taxpayer funded public agencies. There's no shame now in saying the boss of this system is number 70 Whitehall which is something that we can't blame the Blair government or even the Labour Party for, because I was reminding myself yesterday that as recently as the early 2000s, Mo Mogan, when she wanted to step back from being Northern Ireland secretary, in hindsight, we know it's because she was ill. She was given the cabinet office minister post as a demotion by Tony Blair. And she dismissively said, I'm basically minister for the BBC Today programme. It's since the Cameron coalition with the Lib Dems and the Tory uh, rule since that, that this untrammeled use of the cabinet office started beginning with the copying of the New Zealand tactic of bringing out a cabinet office manual which basically writes the constitution the way that our government would like to see it. Uh, but Alex uh, just to just to push back a little bit on that the cabinet office manual of course was written by uh, Gus O'Donnell who was head of the civil service I think he began his career as head of the civil service under Blair under the Blair government so so how much Blair influence do you think there was in that? I think that what was going on was that the Cabinet Office nomenclatura itself under Gordon Brown, when the Labour vehicle was running out of steam, had decided to co-opt the Conservatives and Lib Dems into a new arrangement. We know how new it was for Britain to have coalition government. Uh, we know that common purpose in the figure of Julia Middleton was talking about a coalition before it was a fact and there were common purpose 
views about this, that we need people of sufficient guile, you could almost say that when we point the finger at the Cameron Clegg coalition for the constitutional wrecking that began a decade ago, as David Scott was pointing at on Monday, actually this was a senior civil service wheeze more than it was a political wheeze so parties are somewhat irrelevant to this it reminds me of a maths lesson at boarding school in the 90s when the, the teacher had a blue and a red marker pen on his whiteboard and he said gentlemen learn a lesson from this when the blue marker pen is noticeably spent we switch it for the red marker pen until that starts fading more than the blue and uh, so we go on switching the one for the other yeah, very astute. Thank yeah. you for that, Alex. Well, if our viewers and listeners want to know where this is going, we're going to say a couple of days ago we had information from inside the NHS. And what we were told is brace yourselves because they are going uh, for this autumn. Now, what did they mean by that? Well, the inference was that there was going to be a dramatic um, uh, spike in COVID and as a result all sorts of things were going to be unleashed. Well that was just a comment. Today we've got the document. Have a look at this. Preparing for a challenging winter 2020-21 and this has been written by the Academy of Medical Sciences. Now we haven't had this document too long. We have spent some time on it and we're going to give you as much as we can in the news today but there is so much more in it. So what does it kick off with in the executive summary that July and August must be a period of quote intense preparation for our reasonable worst case scenario for health in the winter that we set out in this report including a resurgence of COVID-19 which might be greater than that seen in the spring. Now uh, when we look at this term reasonable worst case scenario we've got to consider uh, the last time or the first time we heard it used which of course was uh, Neil Ferguson's model, didn't he initially say something like 5 million people dying as a result yes, of it? That's in, how, in the reasonable worst case scenario? That's how the fear was kicked off. Yes. Right. So it goes on with this. The assumptions that we have made should be tested as new evidence emerges, including analysis of the evidence from the first wave to enable prevention and mitigation strategies to be adapted and refined. I find this an extraordinary sentence we're going to test what we've said to see whether it was actually any good in the second wave the assumptions that we have made should be tested mm -hmm. so we've closed down the country we've destroyed 20 percent plus of the economy on the basis of something which hasn't been tested mm -hmm. and they're going to wait till we get hit again in order to test their models this is pretty sick stuff. Mitigation strategies should not pose further disadvantage to the most vulnerable in society. What does that mean, Mike? They're not going to kill as many old people, elderly people in nursing homes, possibly. Implementation of prevention and mitigation strategies require enhanced coordination, collaboration and data sharing between central and local initiatives. Mm -hmm. This is fusion. This is bringing all of the information together, um, the surveillance systems. And we're already seeing clues to this because the local authorities have been complaining bitterly that, that they aren't getting the data from, from central government uh, and they're pushing harder and harder to, 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 they're demanding more and more data from central government. Indeed. So chat box somebody has just said this is an assault and I, I would actually say I agree with that comment this is a planned assault on the population of uh, Great Britain and it's pretty easy to see so here are the challenges the need for health and social care 
undergoes large seasonal fluctuations. And all of a sudden, we're quoting from 2017-18, England and Wales experienced approximately 50,000 excess winter deaths. But we didn't hear anything about those, Mike. No, that was influenza in that case. But no, we didn't shut down the country. We for didn't that. shut down. And the that's more people than they say have died from COVID. Even Indeed, if you we didn't that the start wearing uh, masks. We didn't stop people going into pubs. We didn't do anything. We just let 50,000 people die. But now we're going to have an experiment. We're going to have another round to see whether our proposals and models from the first round, which were chaos, we can use them again. Four additional challenges have great potential to exacerbate winter 2021 pressures on the health and social care system by increasing demand on usual care as well as limiting surge capacity. So let's have a look at these as just bullet points. Well, what, they, what are they talking about with the challenges? A large resurgence of COVID nationally with local or regional epidemics. How do they know that? This is the question I'd like to ask because we haven't seen the evidence for it at all. We see plenty of talk, but no evidence. Uh, well, they're, they're guessing based on their worst case scenario. <laughs> uh, number two, disruption of the health and social care system. Well, we know that's coming because they got it right the first time round, and presumably they're going to make it worse. Number three, a backlog of non-COVID-19 care. Well, that's already in existence. Uh, so all they've got to do is nothing. And we're set up for that to become a fact. Number four, a possible influenza epidemic that will be additive to the challenges above. What's this about, Mike? Well, it is what they say. They're, they're looking forward to an influenza epidemic, which comes on top of COVID. Of course, it'll be very difficult to work out who's dying of which respiratory disease. Uh, and uh, and of, uh, that will allow all kinds of opportunities within the media. So they can flip from one to the other, depending on how the public mood is going. If the public are not responding, they can up the influenza. If that is not doing the job, they can switch back to COVID. Well, let's carry on. Here are the priorities for prevention and mitigation. Uh, it says there's a need for urgent preparation to mitigate the risks of a particularly challenging winter, including uh, minimising community SARS-CoV-2 transmission and impact. Number two, organising health and social care settings to maximise infection control and ensure that COVID-19 and routine care can take place in parallel. How they're going to do that is uh, very interesting because if there were to be a crisis, if they know that there's a crisis coming, that wasn't achieved at all this time round. Well, it's no problem. They're going to they're going to do that by making sure people can't attend accident and emergency. So they've already announced that in Northern Ireland. They're talking about having uh, having to make appointments to go to accident and emergency in England. And of course, as many people have pointed out, that puts the so-called golden first R at risk. Uh, in the sense that it's going to be very, very difficult to get emergency treatment unless you're taken uh, to NA by, by a, uh, a, an ambulance. And of course, the, the amount of demand on the ambulance service is going to mean delays there. Yeah. So let's add in number three, improving public health surveillance for COVID-19 influenza and other winter diseases. So there's even more diseases going to descend on this country in 2020-21. But the key to it is that we've got to increase the surveillance of the population. So now we're really getting a clue for what's going on here. This is not about protecting the health of the nation. This is about implementing a public surveillance system. And number four, 
minimize influenza transmission and impact. Now, before we just move on, I'm just going to uh, uh, go back to the source document, which I should be able to call up on screen uh, for myself. And I'm going to say um, one of the things that they are looking to bring in is developing effective, effective policies to maximize population engagement in essential control measures. So we're back on the applied psychology. And what is this going to include? It's going to include physical distancing, wearing face uh, coverings in settings where physical distancing is not possible, regular hand and respiratory hygiene, high levels of hygiene in the home, heating and ventilation of homes, self-isolation, and participation in the test, trace, and isolate program, and uh, identifying and addressing structural socioeconomic barriers to adherence. And that will require engagement with target communities, excuse me, <clears throat> and national and local consideration of a wide range of incentivization levers, brackets, including financial. So now, Mike, we're talking about getting into people's homes, presumably, to see that you, you've got a clean, uh, sanitised home. And if you don't do these things, apart from anything else, they're looking to bring in financial penalties. So this document is quite amazing. We'll dig into it deeper. Uh, well, the question is then, are we getting any clues that this may be the case, that they're going to want access to our homes uh, well, Alex, last week uh, you highlighted this. Uh, just remind us the background. This is the Dutch press reporting on a rapidly evolving bill that has been drafted by the Dutch government that hasn't really hit Parliament yet for debate. But the first draft, probably as a kite-flying attempt, suggested that there would be searches of private residences to uh, check up on whether people were staying a metre and a half away from non-relatives, including foster children that they were looking, for, looking after occasionally. And uh, that has been scrapped from the bill. But of course, like all the other things we're discussing, it could come back at a sub-national policy level. Uh, absolutely. OK, so that was the Netherlands. But then in Germany, we had this one. And this was the town of Gütersloh, uh, a town with a, a dark past and to this day the headquarters of the Bertelsmann Publishing Syndicate that is basically the mediator of truth for the Germans. And this very same town of 100,000 people has got soldiers storming around it because it's Germany's Leicester. It's where there's a hotspot of cases, we're told at the moment. So soldiers are storming around saying, you must stick this swab in your face and here are your test results. Uh, absolutely. So let's come to the Republic of Ireland then. And this is the journal. Uh, Gardaí should call uh, to homes of people who refuse to take COVID-19 test. TD tells the Doyle uh, Committee. Um, so this is Fergus O'Dowd. Uh, and he's saying that basically that there have been 1,314 people who have been uh, located through tra track and trace, uh, but have not turned up for a COVID test. And he, so he said that uh, Garda should call to their homes and ask them to take the test as it's a serious public health issue. He said, I think it's a huge figure and you need to do more work on it. If it means that the Guardi uh, may need to call on them, uh, you know uh, who these people are. It's not a question that they're unknown. Uh, they are known people and you have their home addresses. I think the Guardi should call on them and tell them that uh, in the interest of public health, uh, they should turn up for a test. This has uh, had quite a response on Twitter with people asking where it's going to end. But again, let's just remind ourselves about the situation in the UK with uh, public health officers 
who may direct, remove or request the constable to remove an individual to a place suitable for screening and assessment. This is the guidance from the Department of Health and Social Care and Public Health England. Uh, let's remind ourselves that uh, where will the person be taken for screening and assessment? This facility must be suitable for screening and assessment. This could be an isolation facility, an NHS facility or any other agreed facility as long as suitable for screening and assessment. Perhaps it's going to be a Nightingale Hospital. Uh, they can take your child, uh, whether you are there or not. Uh, so you, they, but they may only exercise the powers on a child in the presence of an individual who's responsible for the child, or if no such adult is present, an adult that they consider to be appropriate. Uh, so basically, anybody can come and take your children into, into the system at that point. Uh, but don't worry, because we'll always be given the opportunity to comply voluntarily with public health advice. Uh, except that if we don't, we will be uh, we will have that advice imposed upon us. Um, so, Alex, that's that seems pretty clear to me. There seems to be a European uh, trend. Uh, this is this is developing right across the European continent. That your home is no longer your castle. You have no entitlement to a private life. Uh, and they can and perhaps will uh, be breaking your door down uh, if it suits them? Well, it doesn't surprise me, Mike, that the Republic of Ireland is the common law jurisdiction uh, that they're having a crack at first because it is in some ways the most corrupted, even more than Scotland uh, in many ways, as we've been reporting in our uh, coverage for quite a while. But they're going to have a job on their hands because, of course, Bunrath Nahiran, the Constitution of the Republic of Ireland, uh, is on a par with the United States Constitution in being one of the finest common law constitutions in the world. And uh, I think this bears out what John Waters has been warning about for a while, that the section on fundamental rights in the Irish Republic's constitution is being systematically uh, dismantled. We've seen the, the right to life and um, sexuality sections of that part of the constitution already un undone. And now the relevant bit here is Article 40.5 of Bunrath Nahiran, which simply says the dwelling of every citizen, this is the Irish Republic, is inviolable, a good old English word, and shall not be forcibly entered, save in accordance with law. And of course, that is shorthand for what the civil law tradition would call a, an organic law, a statute that says here are the limits of what the state can do. So that's why what you read out has got mention of the Gardaí coming and saying you really should, you know. But it's very similar to continental police practice. De facto, they don't have all the power on the continent here either, even under civil law. A lot of this comes down to police being told in their training or uh, imbibing from each other the idea that when you knock on the door, you're not, you don't go until you have strong armed the person at the door into complying and letting you in, warrant or no warrant. Whichever jurisdiction or even whichever legal tradition you're in, common or civil, a lot of this is mere bluster. But it is certainly pan-European. I'm seeing a lot of similar things on the continent. Uh, Alex, very briefly, because it's nearly half past already and we've got a lot to get through here. But uh, just as you were reading that uh, little section, it reminded me of the section from the uh, Weimar Constitution, which Hitler got rid of uh, in the 1930s. We seem to be running through very similar steps. Yes, uh, American patriots are saying it more clearly than others. Uh, you can have a very fine constitution, but if people have stopped bleeding for it and simply treat it as a piece of paper, if we've got state governors in the United, Nates, uh, United States now saying the Bill of Rights is above my pay grade and similar things going on in all English speaking countries, then what's the constitution worth? You know, the constitution ultimately is not the paper. It is the people who are prepared to stand up for their laws and customs. Absolutely.
That's uh, correct. Right. We just come back to that document preparing for a challenging winter just to take a little bit of an in-depth look at how the thing was put together. But it says that this was done, the report was done at the request of the Government Office for Science. The Academy of Medical Sciences established in June 2020, an expert advisory group chaired by Professor Holgate. Um, and what are they looking at? A clear understanding of a challenging winter, an understanding of what this would mean for deaths. NHS capacity and social care and understanding what challenges this will prevent for present for surveillance test trace and isolate and non-pharmaceutical interventions plans being developed by policy operational colleagues to manage this that's an interesting expression isn't it I wonder what colleagues there are they are mm. so the lead man is Professor Stephen Holgate here he is, encourage people to have a look at him because he's an, he's an incredibly qualified man. I have no doubt this man is of a, uh, an incredibly high intellect, but I did notice that he's a specialist on asthma, and yet at the moment there is nothing in the government's advice to help asthma sufferers with regard to masks. Um, other people appear and encourage our viewers and listeners to research it themselves. This lady, Mandy Ruzenko, uh, is actually working with a completely different group in the NHS, but supposedly in order to get the opinions of the public and people in the um, NHS and care services, get those opinions to the surface. So um, this is uh, that section in the report. My difficulty is that when you get into this, they're not really dealing with the public as a whole. They've had Ipsos Mori in to do uh, some workshops online. They've spoken to 36 people. But when you look at what's going on, they're not talking to the public. They are talking to a variety of organisations. Some of them are fascinating. Evolve um, really takes the biscuit because the funding starts with George Soros and then goes on and on and on and on with a whole range of organisations um, uh, putting money in. Uh, we come back to this one, National Voices. This is inside the NHS again, and it's what the NHS thinks that they want. And it's got NHS voices on COVID. So it talks about the general public, but actually when you look at the work they've done, you don't see it. They are independent, of course. Good My, stuff. Um, the project was part funded by a core grant for the Department for Business. So it's clearly independent of government. And uh, if we have a look at who is involved with their fellowships, well, we just happen to have the Chief Medical Officer, Professor Chris Whitty, and the government's Chief Scientific Advisor, Sir Patrick Valance. So that's all okay. And if we just have another look at Professor Stephen Holgate, well, his name came up in this article for the Evening Standard, where a drug company is having great success and their drug has been uh, fast-tracked through the system. Um, he was the founder. He's still non-executive director of the company Synergen, and they've come up with a respiratory uh, drug which is now being tested. And of course, the COVID situation makes it an ideal testing ground for them. So half will be given the aerosol therapy and half will be given a placebo. And we can find the man praising, well, his own company. So here we are, the reduced immune response of those at most at risk of serious COVID-19 disease <clears throat> makes them ideal candidates to receive the drug to replace their interferon 
beta deficiency. And this is especially so because coronavirus is equipped to evade this first line of viral defense. So what is this man, what part is he playing as part of this team? Is he working for a private company? Is he working for the government? Is he working for the South, Southampton University? We've no way of knowing, Mike, mm. but we can see what's coming. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Now, if you like what the UK column does, you'd like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us there. Now, let's move on to the other uh, big story of the day, and that was the release yesterday of the Russian report. Now, of course, uh, uh, they initially attempted to get that released back in October, uh, and that was prevented by uh, uh, the government uh, because of the uh, general election. Uh, well, it has now released its report. Um, so what can we say about it? Well, first of all, uh, there's lots of this in it. Uh, three asterisks, lots of those sets of three asterisks because there's quite a lot of it is redacted, all the various names and so on. So actually we can't know who specifically gave evidence. Uh, many of the sessions were held uh, in private. Uh, and uh, But there were some people named. We'll come on to that in a second. Now the question is, what is what was the main point or what are the main goals of those behind uh, this report? Well, first of all, uh, the old agenda of social media. Uh, social media firms failing to play their part in tackling covert hostile state action, says Press Gazette here. Um, and here is uh, Julian Knight, who is the chairman of the Digital Culture, Media and Sport Committee, saying that the Intelligence and Security Committee has released its report on the day that we're urging government to get on with the long promised legislation to protect against online harms. Uh, piles on the evidence, uh, and that, uh, and there can be no excuse for further delay. So um, this is one part of it. This is why it's being released now, because they're really keen to get the government to push forward with uh, the censorship agenda. And of course, Press Gazette, they're uh, very much behind the infodemic campaign where they're alleging that there's lots of disinformation being pushed out with respect to COVID-19. So that's a big part of why this is being released now. Uh, another reason uh, is this uh, poll after Russia report criticism should Boris now hold new investigation into the Brexit vote. Uh, we need to reverse the Brexit vote. We've only got six months to do it, according to certain people. Uh, and that is because Boris has clearly decided that he is going to aim for a proper uh, Brexit in many ways. Will there still be plenty of cooperation? But the line is being drawn and there is not going to be an agreement on the future relationship. Seems to be the way things are going. Lots of people are very concerned about that. So they're hoping that the Russia report is going to re-energize uh, the Remain campaign and get uh, more progress on, on getting that situation stopped. Um, now, when the uh, when the report was released, uh, this was uh, what Stuart Hosey, who was from the committee, said. Uh, the committee found it astonishing that no one in government had sought beforehand to protect the referendum. Uh, so this was a very key part of, uh, of what they were uh, talking about. Uh, Luke Harding, uh, the formerly BBC, now of uh, his own website, saying, breaking key paragraphs in hashtag Russia report paragraphs 39 to 45 that the UK government of Theresa May and Boris Johnson did not seek evidence of Russian interference in British politics during the 2016 EU referendum. MI6 sent cursory six-line note when asked about it. Um, well, uh, that's what he said, and this is what they said. Uh, there has been credible open source commentary suggesting that Russia undertook 
influence campaigns in relation to the Scottish independence referendum in 2014. We'll come on to that in a second. Please note that that's uh, sub... Uh, the, 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 um, what's the word? Anyway, it's, it, we'll come on to that in a second. Uh, the written ev evidence provided to us appeared to suggest that HMG had not seen or sought evidence of successful interference in UK democratic processes or any activity that has a material impact on an election, for example, influencing results, appeared to. Where's well, the, I'm we, silent, Mike, because the, the whole thing is, is just becoming so transparent. Yes, but, but anyway, getting back to that <laughs> previous uh, slide, uh, th this, this is where number 44 was what they were referencing. So let's have a look and see uh, what they're saying. For example, it was widely reported that Russia, that, uh, sorry, it was widely reported shortly after the referendum that Russian election observers had suggested that there were irregularities in the conduct of the vote. Uh, and this position was widely pushed by Russian state media. We understand that HMG viewed this as being primarily aimed at discrediting the UK in the eyes of a domestic Russian audience. More recently, we note a study by Ben Nemo uh, called Election Watch, Scottish Vote, Pro-Kremlin Trolls, 12th of December 2017. So they interfered in the Brexit referendum. They interfered in the Scottish referendum, as we were talking about on Monday. But this name, Ben Nimbo, Ben Nimbo gives us the first clue because it's one of the few names that's mentioned in the document, gives us the first clue as to what's going on here because, of course, he was his Integrity Initiative. Uh, and for those that don't know, uh, there's lots of information about Integrity Initiative on the UK Column website. We were one of the main uh, media outlets to cover this story. Uh, this was a group of, we might call them propagandists, uh, who were there to counter what they described as Russian disinformation, uh, but in fact it was disinformation of their own. Um, so who were the names that the report actually does mention? Uh, well, they say we are grateful too. And who is there? Uh, Anne Applebaum. Brilliant. Uh, who's this? Edward Lucas. Edward Lucas, of course, denies any involvement with Integrity Initiative. Anne Applebaum, absolutely, Integrity Initiative, but Edward Lucas denies uh, any involvement with the Integrity Initiative, but I have to say, you know, there are some people in the world for whom such denials are just not credible. Um, so I'm putting Edward Lucas in this category. Uh, who else uh, is on this list? Well, William Browder, of course, of Magnitsky fame. Uh, Christopher Donnelly, the, the Integrity Initiative man himself. Uh, and, uh, well, none other than Christopher Steele. Um, so they were very, very happy with the advice that these people gave them. Uh, and th this seems to be the basis of the entire report uh, and has informed the entire report. So this can't be described as an intelligence committee report. This is an integrity initiative report, uh, 100%. So uh, who has been uh, interfering with the UK elections? Was it Russia or was it this lot? We've shown this before. This still applies. Integrity initiative was funded through the counter disinformation and media development program of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Uh, but you will notice that this is the current UK propaganda network uh, of which Integrity Initiative was or is uh, a very small part. And just to get an idea of the scale of this, look at one other small part of this infrastructure on the right hand side there, 77 Brigade. And let's just remind ourselves uh, what the British military think about 77th Brigade. And we've been involved with the Cabinet Office Rapid Response Unit, with our 77th Brigade helping to quash rumours from misinformation 
but also to counter disinformation. Between 3,000 and 4,000 of our people have been involved, with around 20,000 available the whole time at high readiness. So, so that was Chief of the General Staff, Sir Nick Carter, uh, speaking at one of the uh, live streams a couple of months ago. Alex, uh, we know what effect or what, how, how few people it takes to have an effect on social media and actually drive a campaign. If you've got three to 4,000 people acknowledged by the British military that are working to deal with propaganda, uh, so-called disinformation, with 20,000 on re you know, rapid readiness at any time, this is, this is staggering and it's, utterly uh, it's utter hypocrisy for the British government to be uh, criticising Russia or anybody else uh, for, for doing this when they're acknowledging that they are in fact attempting to uh, influence opinion on social media themselves. That's going to have a huge effect, that number, Mike. And I saw the rise of what they were initially calling shaping within GCHQ and particularly its JTRIG wing, where all the people who were following the smart money and the careerists went. Uh, I saw that rise in 2006-07. And I keep thinking about that time frame because everything you just presented in the last segment, Mike, whether it's the use of the military or the harnessing of Parliament, by the way, the Intelligence and Security Committee is supposed to be the people, it's not the government. That's why it's so politicised compared with what the Joint Intelligence Committee at the Cabinet Office would say, or the newfangled National Security um, Council. The, these bodies are at least government, whereas ISC is Parliament, right? So it's, it's all in our name, it's not part of government. What's going on here is the same old crowd of, sorry to say, has-beens. Um, the Russia watchers, the Russia hawks of the mid-2000s, in many cases they're Cold War warriors of a particular uh, corporatist um, strand that, that claims to be anti-communist, you know, and resisting Russian supremacy. These guys saw in the mid-2000s when I was rubbing shoulders with them, I mean, the people that David Scott and you were talking about on Monday, these are people I took flights to Washington with and ate out with and, and, and spent, you know, time with. I know what they're thinking is they're not inherently bad people. They've got the wrong worldview. They have been rubbing shoulders too long with some very uh, strange dissidents in Russia and the neighbouring countries who see everything through the prism of Russian threat. Obviously, Russia is a big country and can threaten many countries in many ways, obviously. But this has so uh, distorted the worldview of the spooks and hangers-on in Whitehall who've handled these guys that they see everything through the prism of these dissidents. Uh, the Applebaums and, uh, are another magnifier or amplifier, to use these people's own language back against them. The Applebaum uh, and Lucas types amplify this narrative. What these guys have done, the Foreign Office and MI6 guys at the time of the Christopher Steele era, is they basically said, sod it, we're not getting anywhere using the intelligence agencies themselves. They think too independently. We don't have the evidence. Same thing happens in the US where NSA always dissents against CIA-led assessments, which always say Russia did it. So what they've done instead is they have harnessed, this crowd has harnessed the military and parliament, particularly careerists, you know, out for them with an eye to the main chance, like Hosey of the SNP, who, as David said on Monday, has got no depth to him at all. Um, and all the language in this report is, well, you know, it, it, the, the trick is using the report in the first place. Why should a committee of parliament issue such a report? It's not, uh, we don't have a tradition like Congress where you have the Reese Committee and the Church Committee doing uh, sua sponte investigations and finding that spooks have been up to bad things. No, in the Commonwealth tradition, 
there's certainly a major role for parliamentary committees, but it is not, certainly not in intelligence, it's not to find out what happened. It is to give a gut reaction. We don't like how our politicians handled this. They didn't do what we wanted. It's, it's one big crybaby, toys out the pram moment, writ large, this whole thing. It's a, a small clique, and I must stress, they're not all bad people. They, they have maybe failed to see the character flaws and, and distorted worldview of some of their sources, but not all of them are bad people. Uh, but they've got a blinkered worldview and they are trying and trying again until they can get at least the media and the, the bits of government that matter uh, to take their narrative seriously, which is that Russia is always the threat and the problem. And if people in this country think the way that the Russians do, it is because they've been hijacked. Um, OK, well, thank you for that. And just a reminder, because uh, we're coming on to... Uh to Mike Pompeo in a second, but uh, uh, tomorrow Bill Binney will, uh, of course, formerly NSA, uh, will make his case uh, over Russiagate in the United States and the, particularly the WikiLeaks uh, leaks with respect to that, the so-called uh, uh, emails uh, that were allegedly hacked by the Russians, and he's demonstrating that they aren't. If you want to go and watch that, uh, it's on the Schiller Institute website. Do go and have a look at it. Now, uh, Bill, uh, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, uh, was in London yesterday. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, he was there to uh, argue for the further demonization of, of uh, China. Uh, our two nations, he said, that's the US and the UK, are twin pillars for the security of our people, for economic freedom and for liberal values, the rule of law, all, th all of the things that our two nations hold dear. Uh, our commitment to these time-honored principles is unchanging. So well, if you haven't managed to throw up in a bucket well, yet, you know well, that. Yeah. I, I think all it is, Mike, is suffering from oxygen deficiency <laughs> and he can't actually think straight because what he's just said is complete and utter nonsense. Absolutely. So this is what he was actually saying. I'm here to get China. Uh, and that was basically it. Now, uh, of course, uh, while he was meeting Dominic Raab, uh, the Foreign Secretary, they had to social distance uh, and... <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, they, they all had the social distance. Here they are, uh, all four of them all had the social distance, uh, except when they didn't have the social distance, which is apparently when they were standing in front of the clock. Yeah, they, they haven't got masks on. Uh, That's no, very no, disappointing. Ind indeed, and they didn't have the social distance uh, when they were walking out of number 10 oh. either. Either. And they uh, didn't have the social distance when uh, when he was walking with Boris through the yeah. gardens at number 10 it's either. probably just influenza virus in the garden as opposed to COVID, Mike, I, I would imagine. Uh, absolutely. So, uh, so, so what did he say? He said, uh, we hope we can build out a coalition that understands the threat of China and will work collectively to convince the Chinese Communist Party that it's not in their best interest to engage in the kind of behaviour that they've been engaging with. Uh, for example, uh, he said that uh, they had uh, covered up the coronavirus outbreak and exploited it further to further its own interests in a disgraceful way. He said, uh, we talked about how we've, been, uh, how we've seen Hong Kong's freedom crushed. Uh, we've seen the CCP bully its neighbours, militarised reaches of the uh, uh, South China Sea and begin a deadly confrontation with India. I want to take this opportunity to congratulate the British government for its principled responses to these challenges. You've made a sovereign decision to ban Huawei from future 5G networks. You've joined other free nations to condemn China's broken promises on the Sino-British Treaty. Uh, you generally opened your doors to Hong Kongers uh, who are fleeing for freedom. And yesterday you suspended your extradition treaty, that was on uh, Monday, uh, and extended your arms embargo on China to Hong Kong itself. Uh, we support these sovereign choices and we think well done. Uh, so that's, uh, that's Pompeo's uh, uh, attitude today. Now, 
Uh, I can't remember who it was that they were interviewing, but BBC Radio 4 Today programme this morning uh, was interviewing a colleague of Mike, Mike Pompeo uh, and asked the, asked the question, could this end up in a hot war? Uh, and the answer from the, uh, from the American gentleman was, uh, uh, well, uh, possibly, but not possibly not. Uh, but certainly there are major dangers because we're starting to interface with the, the Chinese uh, in more and more places. So it's getting pretty dangerous. Now, of course, this China rhetoric, let's just remind ourselves uh, that Christopher Steele uh, absolutely pushed out uh, his a report on China just last week, which led to the, uh, or at least was part of the, the uh, information which led to the banning of Huawei in the UK. Uh, Christopher Steele, the discredited uh, former MI6 officer uh, and, and uh, owner of Orbis Business Intelligence. Uh, Richard Dearlove, also uh, former head of MI6, had been uh, coming out in two face-to-face -face interviews with Sky TV, uh, calling for a reset of our whole relationship with China's leadership. Uh, and just to uh, consider the report from Christopher Steele again, who of course worked with Richard Dearlove and in fact went to Richard Dearlove uh, on his Russia, to, to get advice about the Russiagate report that went to the United States. Uh, here's what uh, Lindsey Graham had to say about that Russiagate report. Uh, this, uh, and, and he was referring here to the FBI uh, uh, report on, on, the, on Christopher Steele's primary source, uh, who was alleged to be Russian. Uh, this document demonstrates how unsubstantiated and unreliable the Steele dossier was. The document reveals that the primary source of Steele's election reporting was not some well-connected current or former Russian official, but a non-Russian-based contract employee of Christopher Steele's firm. Uh, and Lindsey Graham went on to say, also critically, the document shows that Steele's primary subsource disagreed and was surprised by how, how information he gave Steele was then conveyed by Steele in the Steele dossier. Uh, and as we pointed out on Monday, uh, Steele probably didn't say oops, but he certainly should have. Uh, Brian, so so we have the situation that uh, with respect to the Russia report released yesterday in this country and all the anti-Chinese rhetoric that we're seeing, um, it's founded on these group, these people that Alex has been talking about, and it's basically founded on uh, dodgy information similar to the type of information that we saw in the run-up to the Iraq war. And so, you know, the Russia report itself may not gain much traction because obviously, uh, well, we have to see how much traction it gains. But nonetheless, there is the potential, is there not, for this to lead to some kind of hot conflict? There's that potential, Mike. But of course, the other thing is that in those previous situations, we didn't have COVID going on in the background. So we've now got the the public's mind in a spin because they don't know whether to be worried about what they're being told about COVID or to be worried about Russia or China. What does this produce a very malleable uh, British public where they can be led wherever this government of occupation wants to go? Um, Alex, I'm going to say I think the situation in UK unbelievably dangerous and for the coming months the public has got to wake up pretty quickly uh, because we won't have a democracy come 2021. This is a real risk, Brian, and forewarned is forearmed. So people might be thinking today we're being steered by an invisible hand. Well, actually, that group has had a name in British history for a long time, the Invisible College. At times, it's even called itself that. And I'm not suggesting this is the enemy, but it is a major pool 
of those who have plotted to capture certain sciences and certain ways of doing intelligence, all that we've presented in the news today. And I would recommend a series of books by a gentleman called William Stewart, that's Stewart with a U. Uh, all of his books have The Invisible College as part of the title, and he goes into what this clique was doing at various points in fairly recent history. But if you go further back, and this isn't conspiracy here, uh, history, this is mainstream history here, The Invisible College, a group of plotters and elite thinkers, set up the Royal Society uh, Britain's premier learned society, which uh, basically captured the natural sciences when they were the dominant node in society when they first became mature. And that royal society then span off the British Academy the year after Queen Victoria dies to control funding in the arts when the arts were the dominant node in society. And then in the 70s, under the Duke of Edinburgh's tutelage, you had the Royal um, Academy of Engineering. And most latterly, the year after Blair came to power, you had the Academy of Medical Sciences, uh, on whom you did the big expose today. Uh, this, these bodies were all seeded out from the Royal Society, which itself uh, is a manifestation of what calls what a body that calls itself the Invisible College. Right. So these these groups are misusing the names uh, of, of entities and of, of sciences. Um, the clues in the name Academy of Medical Sciences, not medical itself, because there was already the long established well, there were several bodies like the Royal College of Physicians and the Royal College of Surgeons and the Royal College of General Practitioners. What's going on here is uh, bioscience became sexy. It's where the money and the social control were. And every time this happens, the same clique says, right, we need to get in there and control the funding and what's sayable and not sayable in that guild. Uh, so it's a small group of players, whether you're talking intelligence or bioscience or, or any kind of travel restriction. A small group of thinkers and their main technique is setting the bounds of perception of the policymakers. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for that, Alex. Clearly, there's a hidden hand at work. Clearly, it's taking the country in a very dangerous direction. What can we do about it? Well, we'll say again to the thousands of people that are now listening to UK Column News, those letters and emails that can be sent out so easily challenging people in government, people in the public sector about what they're doing and why they're doing it, showing the inaccuracies, asking for evidence. These are immensely powerful things to do. And if we have enough people doing it, we will start to see those people uh, falling out of the uh, shadows, as it were. So don't sit there worrying about what's happening start to take some action because as we've said before it's the action that conquers the fear we'll leave it there thanks very much for joining us bye bye